Lord Jesus, thank you for praying for us. Thank you for praying for us in John 17. We are those whom you spoke of as those who would believe in you through the word of your apostles. And we sit here this morning, generations removed from this prayer, yet having this prayer answered in our very midst as we have been kept by you to this day, to this very moment. You've held on to us. You've held us fast. We pray that you would continue to do so through the sermon, that this, through this sermon on perseverance and preservation, that you would use it as a means of sanctifying us in the truth and keeping us in your word and protecting us from the evil one. So use this time in your word as a means of sanctifying us in the truth, for your word is truth. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we come to our final sermon in our brief June series entitled Grace. Salvation and Sovereignty in the Gospel of John. And during the sermon series over the last five weeks, we have looked at the doctrines of grace as they came to be called in church history, but as they were sort of formulated and solidified around the time of the Canons of Dort, which was a historical milestone in the church that took place 400 years ago uh, during these days, these very dates, in fact, 400 years ago. So that's in one reason why we've chosen to uh, highlight and commemorate this event and also preach again on these precious doctrines of grace. We have unpacked them the last four weeks. They are in review. Total depravity, unconditional election, particular redemption or definite or limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and today the perseverance or the preservation of the saints, that is all of God's people. So really the first point is all about our need for salvation. The points that follow it describe how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all accomplish it. Namely, the Father elects, the Son atones, and the Spirit regenerates. And then this final point emphasizes the truth that those whom God saves, God keeps. That there's no one for which that they have been elected or atoned for or irresistibly drawn to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit who will not fail to persevere to the end and make it all the way to heaven. And so that's the glorious truth we get to consider this morning. Here's how we can define the perseverance of the saints. Those whom God has chosen, Christ has died for, and the Spirit has effectually called, will persevere in faith unto the end, either death or the second coming of Christ, and experience the fullness of of the blessing of life as they behold the glory of Christ forever. There's the perseverance of the saints. This is in distinction to the Arminian doctrine that was taught during the times of the Canons of Dort that necessitated the restatement of the biblical truth, wherein they were teaching that man who truly believes the gospel may at some point leave off believing in Christ and therefore lose eternal life and perish eternally. Well, surely, we're going to see this morning that that's not the case, but just to be clear, this pushback against the traditional biblical doctrine didn't occur in a vacuum. It occurred because people who claimed to be Christian were walking away from Christ. I mean, you have to have a biblical explanation for that. And surely... It's a misunderstanding of perseverance to conclude that anyone who encounters times of doubt or discouragement or disobedience or falling into sin along the way is nevertheless one who is not persevering. 
Perseverance does not mean that there will be no times of doubt, discouragement, and disobedience along the way. In Mark 9, 24, we hear these very words. The man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 remind us that we as Christians will, will continue to sin while we won't make a practice of it, while we won't give ourselves over to it. We nevertheless will sin, and we will need to confess those sins in an ongoing way. And we even, from time to time, wander into sin in such a protracted way that we need to be lovingly rescued by our fellow brothers and sisters. This is what James chapter 5, verse 20 anticipates, what Galatians 6 anticipates, what's 1 John 5, 18, 19 anticipate. All over the New Testament, there is this reality that we as God's people can, for in the, in the, small, in the short term, fail to persevere. But that doesn't mean that in the long term we won't. In fact, the Lord will renew our repentance and bring us back home. The Canons of Dort teaches this, and I want to read several paragraphs to you from the Canons this morning, since we haven't done that a whole lot in this series, not that that was the intention, but Article 1 in Perseverance, under Perseverance of the Saints, says the following, Whom God calls according to His purpose to the communion of His Son, that is, into relationship with Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, He delivers also from the dominion and slavery of sin in this life, though not altogether from the body of sin and from the infirmities of the flesh so long as they continue in the world. What's the point of that paragraph? The point is, is that we as Christians will continue to sin because we live in a fallen body. Even though we are delivered from the penalty of our sins, we are nevertheless not yet delivered from the presence of sin in this life. Article 4 says something similar. Although the, weak, although the weakness of the flesh cannot prevail against the power of God, who confirms and preserves true believers in a state of grace... Yet converts are not always so influenced and actuated by the Spirit of God as not in some particular instances sinfully to deviate from the guidance of divine grace so as to be seduced by and comply with the lusts of the flesh. They must therefore be constant in watching and prayer that they be not led into temptation. When these are neglected, they are not only liable to be drawn into great and heinous sins by Satan, the world, and the flesh, but sometimes by the righteous permission of God, actually fall into these evils. This is the lamentable fall of David, Peter, and other saints described in Holy Scripture demonstrates. Article 5. By such enormous sins, however, they very highly offend God, incur a deadly guilt, grieve the Holy Spirit, interrupt the exercise of faith, very grievously wound their consciences, and sometimes lose the sense of God's favor for a time, until on their returning into the right way of serious repentance, the light of God's fatherly countenance again shines upon them. So this just acknowledges the reality that as believers, we can and often do fall into periods of sin whereby we incur God's fatherly discipline. Never the removal of his love, never the removal of his salvation, never the removal of his Holy Spirit, but nevertheless an activating of his fatherly care in the form of discipline by which the light of his countenance is for a period of time shut off from us, that we might be brought to repentance and renewed to our Father's fellowship. So what we mean by perseverance is that a truly saved person will never reach a point where they decisively reject Jesus with such hardness of heart that they never return. That's what we mean. We do not mean by perseverance that true believers can't 
fall into periods and patterns of sinful behavior. But we do mean that a truly saved person will never reach a point where they decisively throw in the towel on Jesus altogether and walk away from him. Such hardness of heart would reveal that that person is a hypocrite who never professed saving faith. John chapter 6, verses 67 and 69 underscore this. If you've got your Bibles open in front of you, look back at John chapter 6. These are the very words of Jesus, remind you, and what he says about those who decisively walk away from him who once claimed to follow him. John chapter 6, verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, looking at his apostles, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's what all true disciples say. Where are we going to go? we got nowhere else to go but you. You have the words of eternal life. And this is verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have come to believe and come to know. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, is, he, one of the twelve, was going to betray them. Now, for sure, Judas was an outward apostle. But Jesus makes a clear distinction between him and the other eleven right here. This was one that would have looked like a Christian, that would have looked like a disciple. But we know from this text that according to the words of Jesus, he's a devil. Now, Peter and the other eleven are not a devil. How do we know that? Because... They said, where else are we going to go? We're not going to abandon you. Even when we blow it, we're going we're to run to you. Or you're going to come after us because we have come to believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what Judas lacked. Judas didn't lack any external conformity to the apostolic order. He had all that conformity. He was in the groove with the rest of the Christians. But he lacked a personal belief and a personal knowledge that Jesus Christ was the Holy One of God. So these warnings are designed by God to be a means of securing the perseverance of his apostles. You see that? He, the, the apostles in John 6 are watching all these people defect. And then John, Jesus turns to the disciples and said, you going to go too? You going to go too? And what is that? What does all that defection cause true disciples to do? Hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. See, if you refuse to heed the warnings and you refuse to notice the hypocrisy, and you refuse to be fearful that your own faith is so weak, and unless the Lord holds you fast, you will surely fall away, that just manifests that you don't believe, right? Because we're capable of this, right? We're capable. We, look, we read passages like this, and we say, but for the grace of God, go I. But for the grace of God, go I. As Jim Oreck says, Bible teacher and professor over at, I believe, Voice College in Southern Seminary in Louisville, he says that the Bible teaches for sure the eternal security of the believer, but it does not teach the eternal security of the hypocrite. Or as another writer says, yes, once saved, always saved, but not once professed, always protected. There's a difference between the profession of faith and the possession of faith. A profession does not a possession make. 
Yes, if you're saved, you're saved forever. But if you profess, it doesn't mean you're protected forever because that profession may not be actual possession. Steve Lawson says, the way that we know this is whether or not that faith is persevering. That's the only way we know. It's the only way we know the genuine article. The way you know the genuine article is it doesn't quit. Steve Lawson says, the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw at the first. The faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw at the first. J.A. Metters, a pastor in Texas, writes the following about that reality. He says, imagine a marathon race. In one sense, everyone running is a marathon runner. But in another, only those who endure to the finish are marathoners. And anyone who drops out was never a marathon runner at all. Our difficulty with processing the non-endurers in the Christian race is often because we tend to confuse making a decision for Christ with being a disciple of Christ. World of difference. Being a disciple of Christ is more than admitting who Jesus is. Demons do that all the time in the Gospels. Churches are often filled with those who have a demon-like faith. People will say Jesus is the Son of God, but then never love God or others, and they slither in and out of church week after week, but never hear the clomp of a cross being dragged behind them as they put their sins to death. Discipleship is more than a decision. Saying a prayer doesn't protect you from hell. Neither will a profession of faith. Once saved, always saved? Sure. But the Bible doesn't teach once professed, always protected. Jesus was very clear that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Discipleship is about denying ourselves as our own Lord and Savior, picking up our cross of death to self and following Jesus as master. And the proof is in the perseverance. The proof is in the perseverance. A continued discipleship with Christ as new creations in Christ is God's will for his saints. So, the rest of the sermon is good news from here on out. But it's important to say all that up front because this is what created the controversy in the first place. I mean, you would think all Christians believe in perseverance. All Christians believe that God saves definitively and eternally. Not the case. And so this, this came up as a, as a doctrine in which there was some contention and arguments going on in those days. And still in some, in some cases today, this doctrine is still around. So you have to have an explanation for it. And the explanation is that, yes, true Christians always persevere, but not all false Christians do. And that's the way you tell the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian is perseverance. So this morning, I have great confidence that you as the people of God are among the truth. You're among those who authentically and de- and on the whole, desire to walk and love, love Jesus. And so these next seven truths are for your comfort. These next seven truths are for you to rest in, be confident in, that just as God has saved you, and just as God has called you to himself, he will keep you. You will never be lost. So let's walk through these seven truths with a bit of hope, in our step and joy in our hearts that God who has saved us will keep us. First, 
True Christians are eternally saved. True Christians are eternally saved. John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Notice that. The belief creates in a person or creates a status on a person of the possession of eternal life. If you can lose eternal life, it's not eternal. So to have eternal life is to have eternal life. And this is what Jesus says. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We believe in, in Christ. We have eternal life. We are eternally saved. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he is passed from death to life. Now, Eternal life has many different aspects to it. It's both a present possession, as Jesus indicates here, but it's also a promise that is more fully realized in the future. It is qualitative, that is, it's life of a different kind than man has naturally, and it's quantitative. It is life that begins now, survives the grave, and is manifested in the resurrection of the body and continues forever, beholding the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a big reality. Eternal life is a huge thing. But here's the point. What's settled in eternity cannot be undone in time. And that's Jesus' point here. It was settled already. You have eternal life. If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. So true Christians are eternally saved. Number two, true Christians are eternally supplied. True Christians are eternally supplied. Look at John chapter 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water, Jesus says, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now you might say as a believer, what does this mean? I still feel thirsty all the time. But notice what the text says. It doesn't say you won't feel thirsty, and by that I mean spiritual thirst. It says that you'll never be thirsty. That is, it's always there to satisfy you when your longing soul is thirsty. Jesus will always be your supply. Also, this water, Jesus says, becomes a spring, a well of water. He says, that's why you'll never get thirsty again. Not because one drink is enough, but because one true drink produces a well for an eternity of drinks. What Jesus means is that once you drink of him, you will never lack an abundant supply of drinks. Remember, we are, after all, called in the Beatitudes to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is why drinking from him ensures eternal life. Jesus provides us with every drink of water we need to get us there. Think about it. What is more fundamental to life? If you're going to survive, you need water. It's the fundamental reality to our existence. This is what Jesus is saying. If you're going to have eternal life... You need eternal water. I am that for you. Therefore, we will make it. Because we're eternally supplied by Jesus. We're not just saved by his work. We're supplied by his work. 
in an ongoing way to minister to us, drip by drip, drop by drop, all the way to glory. Number three, true Christians are eternally sealed. True Christians are eternally sealed. John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promises the disciples that after he's gone, there's going to be another helper that is sent by him, namely his own Holy Spirit. And right now, that Spirit, in that particular time, in John 14, dwelt among the disciples, dwelt with the disciples. And Jesus promises that that Spirit is moving in, that he will be in them as he's in us now. And notice that once he's in him, or once the Spirit is in them, what does Jesus promise? He will be with you forever. You're eternally sealed. Believers are kept eternally sealed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says twice in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says that we are sealed by the Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he says that we're sealed. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So both in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4, Paul equates the sealing, that is the presence of the Spirit in our lives, as a seal, as a down payment, as a guarantee of our future redemption. As soon as the Spirit comes into our lives, signed, sealed, delivered, we're His. We're His. You want to sing the song, Stevie Wonder? But it is a beautiful truth. We are signed, we are sealed, we are delivered to him by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we are eternally saved, we're eternally supplied, we're eternally sealed. Fourthly, true Christians are eternally secure. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Behold, the greatest promise of perseverance of the saints in the Gospel of John from the lips of Jesus. He could not be more clear. And yet people have taken this verse and said things about it like this. Yes, the Father keeps you. Yes, the Son keeps you in His hand. But you can jump out. I think He said no one. And that includes you. You can't get yourself out of the Father's hand. Don't feed God's people that hogwash. It's ridiculous. No, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them. My Father's given them to me, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This is rooted in, you're in the grip of the Trinity, for crying out loud. The Father's got you. The Spirit indwells you. The Son has you. How are you getting out? There's no way to get out. 
The only way, if I can say this, the only way to even get out is to, re- is to not be in in the first place. Not be a sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. If they stop doing that, they were never my sheep. The sheep are identified in verse 27. And what is promised to them is eternal life. And they will never perish. Why will they never perish? Because they were given eternal life and they are secure in the hands of both the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father are one. That is, it's not like, you know, sometimes salvation can, I think, unhelpfully be presented this way and perhaps I've even done it before. In fact, I'm sure I have. But this whole idea that our salvation was like, like the son really wanted to save us and the father didn't and the son's kind of buying the father off. You know, like he, he really loves us, but the father just wants to judge us and damn us. But the son somehow kind of twisting his arm like, Father, I've done it. I've done everything. No, that's not the vision of salvation we see here in John chapter 10. We see a father saying, Son, you go die for my sheep. As we read in John 17, we belong to him before the foundation of the world. He was coming into the world to atone for us, to live for us, to die for us, to rise from the dead for us. The Father was in this. He was amening everything the Son was doing. He was like, yes, 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 go get him. And the Son was gladly doing the will of the Father and pursuing us and calling us and dying for us and raising us to spiritual life. And so it's a beautiful image to know that you're loved, according to John 17, with the very love that the Father has for the Son. That's what Jesus says, as startling and amazing as it is. But we're secure eternally because the Father and the Son are one in all of their salvation plan. They're not competing with each other. They're executing the same purpose and will. Number five, true Christians are eternally sustained. True Christians are eternally sustained. John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus is picking up on an image in Exodus of manna coming in the wilderness, which we will get to, Lord willing, in the fall sometime when we come back to our study of Exodus. And he's saying that bread was temporary. They still died in the wilderness. It wasn't eternal. But I'm living bread, and I came down from heaven. And if you eat me, you'll live forever. So what does it mean to eat the living bread? Well, Jesus explains in the context. He says in John chapter 6, verse 26, that the bread is a gift. He says, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. See, Jesus had just done a huge miracle. He'd fed thousands and thousands and thousands of people the day before, and they're showing up again for another free handout. They found the free food truck in Jerusalem, and they are ready for a second, a second, uh, second dish. And Jesus says, look, that's not why I'm here, fundamentally. Yes, I extended compassion to you. Yes, I love you. But the fundamental reason I'm here is to save you eternally. So stop working for this food and start working for real food, namely the food that I came to give, salvation, which I will give to you. And then he calls himself the bread in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he says that to eat of him, to eat the bread, means to believe in Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. Verse 47, Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And what's the result? Those who eat this bread, according to John 6, 58, live forever. They live forever. So, it's believing in Christ. Those who believe in Christ are eternally sustained by Christ. How can this be? John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There it is again. Jesus definitive. If you came to me, I'll never get rid of you. I'll never cast you out. Because your coming to me is evidence that the Father has given you to me. That's what he says. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. Number six, true Christians will eternally survive. True Christians will eternally survive. John chapter 11, verse 25, the account of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Did you love it? That's a mission statement of Jesus. He says, this is my life. This is what my life about, to lose nothing of what has been given to me. Namely, all those elect people that the Father gave me that I have come to earth for. That innumerable multitude. I'm not going to lose one of them. But I'm going to raise them all up in resurrection glorified bodies on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I love the way the Bible puts these things together, don't you? Because by nature, Christians want to pick. Do you see what Jesus did here? He preached Calvinism in verse 39, and he preached Arminianism in verse 40, so to speak. I'll explain in a second. Look, look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Boy, that's definitive and sovereign. I'm coming for those who were given to me, and only those who were given to me. But look at verse 40. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. It's like a free offer of the gospel. Those are both Calvinist verses. I'll explain. Here's why. Those who look to him and believe are those who were given. We don't know who's given. We call all to look and believe. And those who look and believe, the Spirit does the work. That's what we do. It's the same in John 6, 37. All that the Father has given me will come to me. Well, that means we don't have to evangelize. I mean, he's already given them. Why do we have to tell anybody? That's not the way it works. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. So we freely invite all, everyone, no matter what they are, who they are, what their background is, sinful, self-righteous, whatever, all come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you will see in time the reason you came was because the Father gave you to Jesus. And it's a glorious comfort, and it's a glorious security. 
Nobody's taking that security away from me, and you shouldn't let anybody take it away from you either. We believe it till the day we die because our souls hang on it. If he doesn't keep me, if he didn't call me, if he didn't do it, if it's based on my fickle will, I'm going to abandon it before it's done. But if it's based on sovereign grace, all-powerful God Almighty Jesus invading my life and resurrecting a dead sinner, I'm going to make it. That's why we preach these things. Not because we're trying to run a th- or win a theological argument, because we're trying to get Christians to heaven with hope and joy and confidence so they can go to the mission field and lay their lives down and die. Or they can live a radical life at work, or they can do the hard things and resist sin, or they can raise a family according to the Bible. That's why we preach these things. Getting a little excited this morning. Where am I? Okay. (laughs) Number seven. Number seven. True Christians are eternally safe. The perseverance of the saints was an object for which Christ prayed. In his prayer in John 17, we read this. We read the whole prayer. Jeremy read it for us at the beginning of the sermon. He says that for all those who shall believe on me through their word, that's us, verse 20, And throughout this entire prayer, Jesus is praying that the Father would keep us. He says, Father, keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. Satan and all his soul-destroying, deceiving power will not win the day for any of God's children. And the reason is because Christ asked for it. And anything that he asked for according to the will of God, which this is definitely the will of God, is received by the Father and answered, Amen. So that's the seven. True Christians are eternally saved, supplied, sealed, secure, sustained, survive, and are safe. Now let me conclude these last five minutes with three quick applications. First application, this should give us hope, brothers and sisters, that if we belong to Christ now, we'll always belong to him. This is the comfort of Article 6 in Canons of Dort. Let me read this from you. Article 6 under Perseverance says, But God, who is rich in mercy according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not wholly withdraw the Holy Spirit from his own people, even in their melancholy falls, nor suffers them to proceed so far as to lose the grace of adoption and forfeit the state of justification or to commit the sin unto death, nor does he permit them to be totally deserted and to plunge themselves into everlasting destruction. Article 3, by reason of these remains of indwelling sin and the temptations of sin in the world, those who are converted could not persevere in the state of grace if left to their own strength. But God is faithful, who having conferred grace, mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves them therein, even to the end. Article 8, finally, this is not in consequence of their own merits or strength, but God's free mercy that they do not totally fall from faith and grace, nor continue and perish finally in their backslidings, with which respect to themselves is not only possible, but would undoubtedly happen. But with respect to God, it is utterly impossible, since his counsel cannot be changed, nor his promise fail, neither can the call according to his purpose be revoked, nor the merit, intercession, and preservation of Christ be rendered ineffectual, nor the sealing of the Holy Spirit be frustrated or obliterated. 
praise God that we're held by our triune God and his grip. So that should comfort us and give us hope that if we belong to Christ, we'll always belong to him. Number two, it should give us a great incentive to remain obedient to Christ. Some, sometimes we can hear perseverance and think, well, that would make, I mean, if I was that secure and that supplied and that safe and that sustained, I, I wouldn't care as much about sin. That's not the way we as God's people act. No, perseverance becomes one of the greatest motivations to pursue obedience to Christ and fight our sin. This is why Article 12 of the canon say the following, This certainty of perseverance, however, is so far from exciting in believers a spirit of pride or of rendering them carnally secure, that on the contrary, it's the real source of humility, filial reverence, true piety, patience in every tribulation, fervent prayers, constancy in suffering, and in confessing the truth, and of solid rejoicing in God, so that the consideration of this benefit should serve as an incentive to the serious and constant practice of gratitude and good works as appears from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. Article 13 says something similar. Neither does renewed confidence of per persevering produce licentiousness, that is, just the living in sin, disregard for holiness, or a disregard to piety in those who are recovered from backsliding, but it renders them much more careful and solicitous to continue in the ways of the Lord, which he hath ordained, that they who walk therein may maintain an assurance of persevering, lest by abusing his fatherly kindness, God should turn away his gracious countenance from them to behold which is to, to the godly dearer than life, though withdrawing whereof is more bitter than death, and they in consequence hereof should fall into more grievous torments of conscience. Finally, it should give us encouragement to come to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, kids, younger people, maybe some older adults who have yet to come to Christ. Let the doctrine of perseverance encourage you to come to Christ. You say, how does that happen? Well, it's what led Charles Spurgeon to trust Christ. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is what led him to conversion. Let me give you his words. He was fearing, just to set it up quickly, this is my closing illustration, when he was, fear, he was fearing that if he came to Christ, he wouldn't be able to continue. Because he saw so many people who profess faith in Christ and then walk away. He's like, I'm going to be just like them. And I'm going to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And that's going to be far worse judgment than if I never professed him to begin with. What confidence do I have that I'm ever going to continue? But this is what gave him encouragement to continue. He said, whatever good res resolutions I might make, the possibilities were that they would be good for nothing when temptation assailed me. I might be like those of whom it had been said, they see the devil's hook and yet can't help nibbling at his bait. But that I should morally disgrace myself as some had done, whom I had known and heard of, was a hazard from the very thought of which I shrunk in terror. And so he remained terrified. He remained paralyzed in unbelief. But then Spurgeon heard the marvelous truth that all who truly start the Christian life surely complete it. At that point, he could not resist entrusting his life to Christ. He says, when I heard and read with wandering eyes that whosoever believes in Christ Jesus should be saved, the truth came to my heart with a welcome I cannot describe to you. The doctrine that he would keep the feet of his saints had a charm indeed for me. He testified elsewhere, I must confess that the doctrine of the final preservation of the saints was a bait that my soul could not resist. 
I thought it was a sort of life insurance, an insurance of my character, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew that I could not keep myself. But if Christ promised to keep me, then I'd be safe forever. And I longed and prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me a temporary salvation, such as some preach, but eternal life which could never be lost. This doctrine became such a key component in Spurgeon's ministry. Without it, he claimed that he wouldn't even be able to preach. He said, if anybody could possibly convince me that final perseverance is not a truth in the Bible, I should never preach again, for I feel I should have nothing worth preaching. Hey, man, what kind of God is that? Go, go sell insurance. I mean, not that, that that's a great thing to do, but like, don't preach. I mean, I would, why preach this? I mean, if, if, if a God doesn't save, why preach? Spurgeon said that if he were unable to preach this important doctrine, he would at once renounce the pulpit. So passionate was Spurgeon on the truth of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that he wrote the following. He said, if one dear saint of God had perished, so might all. If one of the covenant ones be lost, so may all be. And, there is no, and then there is no gospel promise true, but the Bible's a lie, and there's nothing in it worth my acceptance. I will be an infidel at once when I can believe that a saint of God can ever fall finally. If God has loved me once, then he'll love me forever. Spurgeon flatly rejected the possibility of a gospel that lets saints fall away after they were called. To him, that would be no gospel at all. He said, I could never either believe or preach a gospel which saves me today and rejects me tomorrow. A gospel which puts me in Christ's family one hour and makes me a child of the devil the next. A gospel which first justified and then condemns me. A gospel which pardons me and afterwards casts me down to hell. Such a gospel is abhorrent to reason itself. Much more, it is contrary to the mind of God whom we delight to serve. Praise God, brothers and sisters, we don't have that gospel. We have a gospel that saves us for eternity. A Christ that is once received, who keeps us in God's family forever, and a justification that gives us an everlasting no-condemnation verdict and a pardon that guarantees our preservation. Those whom God calls, God keeps. For I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 He who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 I close with this quote from the Canons of Dort. It's the one that closes the Canons. It says, the carnal mind is unable to comprehend this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and the certainty thereof, which God hath most abundantly revealed in his word. For the glory of his name and the consolation of pious, that is, godly souls, and which he impresses upon the hearts of the faithful, Satan abhors it. The world ridicules it. The ignorant and hypocrite abuse and heretics oppose us. But the spouse of Christ, that's the church, hath always most tenderly loved and constantly defended it as an inestimable treasure. And God, against whom neither counsel nor strength can prevail, will dispose her to continue this conduct to the end. Now to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be glory and honor forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word that has reminded us again of the precious, precious salvation that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, Father, have planned, that you, Son, have secured, and that you, Holy Spirit, have brought home to us in power, regenerating application to our souls 
raising us from deadness and sin to walk in newness of life and then indwelling us, never to leave us, but to seal us for the day of redemption and to secure us for eternal fellowship with you. Thank you, Father, for these precious, precious remedies for all of our soul's concerns, all that sin would threaten, your promises trump, all that Satan would accuse, your promise and safekeeping make us to triumph. So thank you for this time together. Help us to rise in song and celebrate who you are as the God who saves finally, eternally, and that those whom you call, you will never, ever, ever forsake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.